If you're feeling overwhelmed by the amount of things you have to do, this is the episode for you. Today's guest is Alexis Hasselberger, and she has mastered the art of time management. Alexis has never worked more than 40 hours a week for someone else. She never answers emails on the weekends, and she always has her notifications turned off. And yet, she still managed to accomplish some pretty big things in her career. She's worked with over 150 startups as an HR director and consultant, and her Udemy courses have reached over 46,000 students. And she has two kids. How's that for making the most of your time? Alexis now runs her own business as a time management and productivity coach. Her motto is stress less, do more. She helps clients do more with their time so that they can be present at home, stay sane while working remotely, and get everything they want done without the stress. Today, Alexis is here to spill all her secrets. She walks us through her system for organizing tasks, techniques for setting boundaries and saying no without burning bridges, and how to develop a mindset around productivity. Because it's not really about checking off your to-do list. At the end of the day, we all want to feel like we used our time in service of our goals and values, and that we weren't just doing busy work. And that's what Alexis is here to help us do. You might want to take notes as you're listening to this episode, and I would love to know the one tip that really resonated with you. Jot it down on an Instagram story and tag me at Inside Out with Jane. And I'll reshare it. And if you are new to the podcast, welcome, welcome. And be sure to hit that follow button on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for new episodes every Tuesday. All right, on to the show. This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. And that's what we're all about right here on Inside Out. Welcome to the podcast, Alexis. Thanks for having me, Jane. I'm really excited to talk to you. I am too. I have a ton of questions for you as the productivity expert. You have a really interesting background. You worked for a long time in HR and startups, but I noticed that you have a degree, a BA in existentialism and studio art. So I will have to ask you about that. Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to share. Clearly, I was not thinking about career path in college, right? So I went to NYU and I was in the, the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, which meant that we just got to create our own majors. As long as you could defend it in like a four hour oral exam at the end, you could do anything you wanted. And so I just took classes that I thought were interesting. <laughs> and I took a lot of art classes. I took a lot of philosophy and education classes. And I took a lot of existentialism. I mean, I love it. existentialism. I think a lot of people think that 
it's a depressing framework. And I think it is like the most optimistic of all philosophies, because to me, existentialism is just that we get to create our own lives. We get to create our own meaning and that there isn't anything that is penning us in. And so I really, um, I, I was really drawn to that. The story of my degree is that I did not think about what I would do after college. And what I learned is that all that matters is that you have a degree. Like for most things, unless you're pre-med or, you know, even engineering, not so much, right? Some of the best programmers I know didn't go to school for engineering. It just matters that you have a degree, not, not necessarily what it's in. That's such a big misconception of like what you study has to apply to what you end up doing. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so you have this degree where you got to define all your coursework and all that. And then when you graduate, what happened then? Like, how did you end up working for a startup? So all throughout college, I worked, you know, full time or 30 hours a week during school. And I worked for basically like a small mergers and acquisitions M&A firm. And I basically did every, like I was an office manager. I, there was no HR, but I did the HR. Like I ran payroll by hand. I like calculated it out with a calculator. Like This was back wow. in, you know, the very like late nineties, early two thousands. So I got a lot of kind of administrative skill work and kind of working in that very small startup environment. So I've been doing that all through college. And then I graduated college and I quit that job because I don't know why, why do you do anything when you're 21 or 22? Right. But I quit that job. Um, and then I, I worked for a window and door company for like eight months, okay. <laughs> you know, again, who knows? Uh, so I don't know. I was doing office management and stuff like that. And then I moved to San Francisco on a whim and I, I got a job as an office manager and in a startup, an office manager means catch all for everything else. Mm, right. And right. so I was doing logistics and finance and operations and HR. And eventually someone, you know, I think it was our corporate attorney said, you know, the next time you're gunning for a promotion, just ask to get HR in the, the title because like mm. you're already doing all this stuff. So that's what I did. And then it was much easier to transition into other HR jobs and director of HR and operations types of things. So I think this moral of the story is that there is no clear career path <laughs> of you know how you get to what you're doing. A lot of it is just learned on the job and you figure out where to go from there. Yeah. Great point too about your title might not reflect all the things that you do, especially at a startup, because mm -hmm. like oftentimes you just make up your own title. Yeah, totally. At this this company that I first started out at in San Francisco, my title went from like office manager to operations manager to director of HR and operations. And my role and responsibility didn't actually change that much. Like we grew, but the things I was doing didn't change that much. And so I think you're really right mm, there. Interesting. So you were in San Francisco, like right as the tech scene started blowing up. What do you remember about that time? So I worked for startups as, you know, HR operations, et cetera. I also was a consultant for startups working at an HR outsourcing company for a long mm. time. So I worked with probably 100, 150 startups during that time. What I started to see was like, one, I'm really bad at knowing which startups are going to succeed and which ones are going to fail. Sometimes a company would come in and I'd be like, I know this idea doesn't seem like, how are they ever going <laughs> to succeed or make money? And like, these would be the ones that would, would make it. I mean, Eventbrite was one of our clients. DoorDash was one of our clients way back oh, then, yeah. you know, when, when we were doing HR. So these were like little, little startups at the time, you know, maybe 10 people. And then now you see them and they're like huge successes. The other thing you see is this quality of working all the time and like startups feeling like a young person's game, which is like, we work all the time. We're at the office all the time. 
we have ping pong tables and beer and like we are just here living here all the time. And that didn't seem like the life I wanted. And it also didn't seem like it was necessarily that much more productive than, mm. you know, doing good work while you're at work and then having a life outside of that as well, at least to me. There is such an ageist culture in startups. Do you think it's changed much over the years? You know, it's interesting because I think I read at some point that the average age of a startup founder is actually like 38, which you would mm. never think because right. everyone just imagines it's like 25 year old people. I think that stereotype still still lives there. And I also mm. think that there is something to the fact that like, there are a lot of young people in startups when it's exciting and fun and like we're doing something new. And if there is this culture of overwork, then often people who, you know, might be young and single and willing to put all of their time and energy into something, then they might be the people that are drawn to something like that too. For a lot of places where I worked, I was one of the only, you know, sometimes the only woman, sometimes mm. one of the only few women and like definitely the only mother. Was that part of your decision to go off and run your own business is like having enough time for yourself and your family? No, not really. I mean, I think it's funny. I actually had before I started a business, I worked less than I do now. <laughs> My oldest kid is 12 and I still worked for other people until maybe three years ago. It wasn't until my kids were like nine and seven that I started a business, mm -hmm. but I did orchestrate my world such that I was able to have more time. So I'd been working part-time, yeah, I'd been working 30 hours a week for the last five or six years until I started my business. I was just talking to another founder who was saying that the jump from full-time work to working on her own is like 40 hours to like 100 hours. But then yeah. it's like, it's for your baby. Like it's your, yeah. you, you have full ownership over it. Yeah, it's been an interesting transition for me because I was always someone who was like hard segmenter between work and home. I just mm. never the two shall mix. And I was really clear about when I'm working and when I'm not working. I think my mom told me at some point, like never work more than 40 hours a week because then they will expect it. When I started working for myself, work became for the first time, like something I wanted to do versus something that I had to do. Not that I didn't enjoy it before then, but like it is a difference of waking up every day and saying like, no, I'm excited to do this thing and I want to make progress. And so that's been more, more of a struggle is for me, like coming to terms with the fact of liking work <laughs> and wanting to do more of it. That's a good problem to have. Maybe we can talk a bit about your business and what you do now, because you have a coaching program and you run courses for people around productivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I am a time management and productivity coach. And so what that means in my business is that I kind of have three verticals. So I have coaching, so I do individual and one-on-one, -on -one, you know, one-on-one -on -one and group coaching. I also do training and workshops for companies. So, you know, I'll come in and I'll do workshops on productivity or leadership, things like that. And then I also have a couple of online courses. One of them is around productivity in general, and another one is around how do we work from home and stay sane that I mm. produced during this pandemic, because that was a big need coming up for a lot of my clients. Now I help people to figure out how can we be excellent at work, get all the things done that we need to get done, and also have fulfilling personal lives outside of work and that they don't have to come at the cost of each other. I feel like you are the exact guru that we need. I definitely <laughs> want to ask you about the working from home and staying sane piece, but yeah. maybe we can start out talking about some of the basics of productivity and time management for entrepreneurs. A lot mm -hmm. of our listeners are either solo entrepreneurs or just starting out with their businesses. If you enjoy your work, you're going to work a lot, but that means like you can burn out easily. So what are some yeah. things you can do to get ahead of that? 
One of the biggest things that I see is that we're trying to use our memories to do all the things we need to do. Like we don't have a good system for keeping track of everything. And especially when you're an entrepreneur, at the beginning, you're doing everything, right? So you have your hands everywhere and it feels really stressful and you're always feeling like you're fighting fires. So one of the first things that I have everyone do that I work with is just start using a task system so that you can keep everything out of your mind and someplace where you can actually look at it and prioritize things. We have to prioritize linearly because we can only do one thing at a time. And so being able to look at it and say, okay, yes, this is what I'm doing today. And this incoming item, is it more important or less important than the things I'm supposed to be doing today? I think is really valuable because we're not very good at doing that when it's just in our head. We just see the thing that's coming in and we say, oh yeah, we should do that thing because it's right in front of us. And that can be really detrimental to our long-term goals. So that's one thing I would say. Another thing around burnout is like have a stopping time every day, like pick a time to stop. Mm. It doesn't have to be the same time every day, like that's not realistic. But if you start the day saying, today, I'm going to be done by 6pm, or you know, maybe it's long today, I'm going to be done by 8pm or whatever it is, then we essentially are more efficient during the day, because we run up against Parkinson's law, which is that work expands to fill the time allotted. And so if we don't have a stopping time, we will just keep doing things. If we don't have that stopping time, we just find ourselves working forever because the reality is you could work every day. I mean, even if you're working for yourself, if you're working for someone else, it doesn't matter. We could work every day until midnight for the rest of our lives. And there would always be more work to do tomorrow, right? We will never run out of work to do. And so if you don't give yourself those breaks, then you're never going to get them and you won't have that opportunity to recharge, which is actually really essential for productivity. Those are such good points. When you're talking about Parkinson's law, like work expands to fill the time allotted, I was thinking about mm -hmm. procrastination because there was a similar quote that I would think about as a student that was something like, if you only have an hour, it'll only take an hour. Yeah, <laughs> this is true for meetings too, right? Like we book a meeting for an hour, but if you book the same meeting for half an hour, you could do it in half an hour. <laughs> this is true, yeah. You mentioned a point about prioritization. So once you have your task system and have everything laid out, do you have an easy framework to think about how to prioritize things that come in? Yeah. So I take a kind of different approach to prioritization, I think, than a lot of people in that I prioritize everything by date. So instead of saying, like, looking at a list and saying, this thing is more important than this thing, I figure out, like, what is the next action I have to take? for any task or project that comes up. And then I just say, when am I actually going to do that thing? When do I have time on my calendar that I'm going to do that thing? And then I just put a date around that next action. And in that way, I don't need to use like these other, like, is this high priority or low priority or is it whatever? I just figure out when I'm actually going to do the thing. And then everything is organized in kind of date order. Now, in order to figure out when you're going to do the thing, you do have to use some other kind of frameworks. And so I really like the Eisenhower matrix, which is what's the, the axis of urgent and important. And so thinking like if it's urgent and important, well, it needs to be done soon, right? Like that needs to have a next action date that's sooner rather than later. If it's urgent, but not important, well, actually, this is something that we want to delegate if we can. And mm. not all of us have people to delegate to, but we either want to delegate it or we want to do it after the urgent, important things. Sometimes we do these things first because we're like, well, it's easy, right? It might be, it might not be important, but it's urgent and it's easy. And so we prioritize it when we should. And then we have things that are like not urgent and not important. And I think a lot of us have trouble taking these things off of our list entirely, but 
The reality is there are things that we're just never going to do. And it's better to just be ruthless about that upfront than leave it on our list and then feel bad about it until eventually it's too late. And then there's the things that are not urgent, but important. And this is the area where most people have a lot of trouble. And that's where procrastination comes in, right? Which is, mm. it's important, but it's not urgent. So we push it off, we push it off, we push it off. And now it's due tomorrow and we're pulling an all-nighter to make it happen. And so mm. for those bigger things, I always suggest that people break it down into its component parts and then schedule when they're going to actually do those things. Mm. I feel like as I've grown in my career, I've gotten a better sense of how long projects will take and how long I will take to do them. And it takes yeah. you know, other stakeholders involved to prove them and things like that. But one thing I'm still learning to get better at is saying no to things. And uh, classic just I don't know if it's just like being a woman in this world, but it's hard to say no sometimes. What tips do you have around saying no without burning bridges? Yeah. So I think this is a topic that comes up for literally everyone that I work with. And I have an exercise that I have people do, which is a stop doing list. <laughs> and then we come up with ways to say no going forward. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of ways to think about a no. And I think you're totally right with the cultural piece, like women, especially not that we want to genderize everything, but like we live in a gender culture and we have been trained to say yes and to be caregivers and all of this stuff. And so it is, I think it is harder and we feel like there's going to be more emotional blowback. So I think a couple of things about saying no is come up with some template words that you use when you say no especially over email, but even just in your mind that when you get asked something that you're going to do, that you have words to say no, because it's hard emotionally to come up with like the activation energy to figure out what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. And so if you have a couple of different flavors of how I say X, Y, or Z, then it becomes easier. So what I teach my clients is it's, I just call it the hell yes test, which is like, if somebody asked me to do something, is my immediate reaction hell yes? If so, great, go ahead and say yes. If not, then don't say yes right away, right? Like mm. don't just immediate yes it, say, hey, thank you so much for thinking of me. Um, let me get back to you. Whatever it is, have some kind of delay so that you can kind of sleep on it and decide, you know, is this something that you really wanna do? Is this something that you would do if it were tomorrow? Because I think that's that happens a lot too, where we're like, say yes to something that's six months in the future, even if we really don't wanna go, like just because mm. it's in the future. Think about it, like if this were happening tomorrow, would I wanna go? And then think about if that's true, would I do I have time for this? Like, is this something I actually have room for in my schedule? Then, and only then do we actually say yes. And if we're gonna say no, then we wanna have some, to, to remember some ways to do that. So like, it doesn't have to be just no, it could, be, although it very well could be, we don't always need to have a reason. We can just say, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm not gonna be able to make it. End of story, right? Nothing else. Right. Um, you can also have like a partial note where it's like, hey, you know what, I am, I, I'm not going to be able to take on chairing this committee. But if you have a smaller role that's less time intensive, like I would be happy to do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, it might be a no where it's like a not right now. No. So it's like, hey, I'm totally happy to take that on. I'm not going to be able to address it until, you know, the two weeks from now. Does that timing work for you? Is that all right? Maybe they say yes, maybe they say no. And so I think there's there's ways to say no that aren't just like a flat out no. And when we think about it that way, then I think it's a little easier for us to to massage because I don't, I don't know, you tell me, did any of those seem like burn bridges kind of no's? 
No, definitely not. I think the first one like is totally reasonable, like just saying I can't make it. That makes a lot of sense. But I usually feel like I have to qualify it, like justify and give a reason for why I'm saying no. Mm -hmm. But what happens then, right? Like if you say, oh, I can't make it that day, then they're like, great, what day can you make it? Mm -hmm. And then you've gotten yourself into a bind. Uh, like, right. I think just like start with gratitude, right? Like, hey, thank you so much. This is so kind of you. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make it. I hope you have fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You have fun without me. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and sometimes it just takes experimenting. A lot of times it's like we just need to say no to a few low stakes things and see that like, nothing bad happened. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to start saying no a little bit more. Yeah. Got to build up that muscle. One thing that's come up within the pandemic and working from home is there's this perception that like, oh, well, you're just hanging out at home. So what else do you have to do? And maybe here we can <laughs> we can move into your tips around how to work from home while staying sane. Yeah. So I think like the thing that's happened that I think we've all been thrown into, right, is like any kind of sense of boundary we had before the pandemic has been just completely obliterated right? Like no boundaries exist for us. It's like, we don't have a commute anymore. So there's not transition time between work and home. We don't have like spatial definition between work and home. And so I think that part of it starts with just actually trying to recreate some of those boundaries, even if that feels false. Things that it can be as simple as like, picking a spot where you work in your house. Maybe you don't have an office to go to, but maybe there's like one chair at the dining room table that is your work spot. When it's time to work, you go to that spot. Things like putting work stuff away at the end of the day. So like having that stopping point. So maybe you only have one laptop. Maybe you have two profiles on that laptop. One is for personal and one is for home. And at the end of the day, you log out of that work profile so that you are not tempted by seeing those Slack messages that come in. If we're home all the time, do we really need to have work email and Slack on our phones? Probably not, right? So thinking about like, how can we actually recreate some of these boundaries? I think recreating transitions too. So having some kind of to work and away from work transition. I think most of us now are guilty of like, we roll over, we pull our phones off of our bedside table and we just start scrolling the work messages, right? Immediately, <laughs> yeah. before we even get out of bed. And... This, I mean, maybe we did that before, maybe not, but we used to then have like some 20 to 30 minute period where we were on a bus or on a train or driving where we were doing something else. And so maybe just recreating a little space in the morning, maybe not going to the work email right away and instead getting up, having coffee and like patting around the house, puttering for a few minutes. At the end of the day, maybe it's like you have an end of work transition. For me, I usually go on a run at the end of the work day. Like that's, I get myself out of the house, away from a computer and I go run. Maybe it's just like listening to your favorite podcast for 15 minutes, like alone in a room, <laughs> especially if you have kids and you've got to go like straight to deal with them right afterwards. So trying to recreate any of those transition points that we can and bring some routine to it, I think really helps. What are some of the boundaries that you've set up for yourself? So I don't check email on weekends or evenings ever. And I never did when I worked for other people either. I, I have never even checked work email during a vacation, not even once. I just don't do that sort of a thing. People often feel scared to do that, especially when they're in a culture that feels always on. And so what I always say is like, you can set boundaries, but give people an emergency contact way to get to you. So you can put up on your Slack away message at the end of the day, you know, I'm on family time now. If you have a true emergency, text me. 
or something like that. Or I personally keep, I have an out of office reply that goes on at Fridays at 5 p.m. and comes off Monday mornings, which just says, I don't check email on the weekends. For more information about why, go read my blog post about why taking breaks is really important for productivity. And I keep that there not only for other people to know what to expect, but also because it keeps me in check. Like if I've sent that out and then I do check my email or I do reply to someone, now I'm not in integrity anymore. So it's like a check on myself also. So I think as long as you tell people what you're doing and you give them an out, then we can create a little bit more boundaries than we think. We get into trouble when we're just like go off the grid. That's not normal for us. Like we're always on and then all of a sudden we're not. Now people are wondering like what's going on instead of just communicating with them about what we're doing. Mm, I love that. Practicing what you preach. Um, <laughs> it's important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about creatives because some of our audience spend big chunks of time making stuff, either producing products or editing videos or things like that. How do you recommend managing time when you need to have like big chunks of uninterrupted work time? So I think this is a problem for almost everyone. It's interesting, right before we, we started recording, you asked me to turn off notifications on my phone and everything. And I said, I don't have notifications on. And I think that's one of the ways that you do it. Because if you need long uninterrupted stretches of time, you don't have to have notifications off all the time, but you want to turn off all the notifications during that time. Again, if you work with other people and you might be worried, put on an away message that says what you're doing, right? That says like, I'm offline working on a project. If you need me in an emergency, here's, here's how to get me. But create that time for yourself. I have no meeting Mondays for myself. So every Monday is completely an eight hour block of uninterrupted time. I do not take meetings ever. I don't make exceptions. Like I don't have meetings on Mondays. And so for me, that's when I get all my creative work done. And I used to do that when I was working for other people too. And I, I would just get other people behind it and be like, doesn't everyone want a no meeting Monday where they yeah, can just get work? So nice. Right? Um, so I think you create that time. Another thing that like most people check email on average 37 times a day, like that's the average. I think that, I mean, we say, wow. And then we think about it and we're like, eh, eh, that seems right. Like whether I'm checking it on my phone. Yeah. Or whatever, right. Cause it's like every and, pocket of time that I'm free or whatever, I'll just check mm -hmm. all my notifications. Yeah. And so instead thinking about email and messaging as a type of work that has to be done that should be scheduled, like that's another way to think about it. So if you need uninterrupted stretches of time, don't be worried about all the email that's coming in. Instead say, okay, I'm going to have this six hour block of time and then I'm going to dedicate an hour to messaging right after it so that you don't feel so compelled to interrupt yourself or to check what's going on during that time. Mm, yeah. When I get messages, I'll see like the bubbles come up and I'm like, oh, this is a real time conversation. But you're right. The great thing about async communication is like you're asynchronous and you don't have to right. respond right away. Yeah. And, and we just, I think like over time as technology has gotten better, it, we start to think that it does have to be real time. And I think that's why like notifications are so problematic because like it could be something that somebody really needs from you right that minute. And it could just be like a cat video, right? <laughs> or like some notifications <laughs> about whatever. And yeah. so it's really hard to tell the difference just by the notification. And there was a study that was done out of UC Irvine uh, several years ago that showed that when we get distracted or interrupted, any little ping that's coming up from our phone, even when we interrupt ourselves, like we're working on something and we're like, oh, let me just go check Slack really quick, that it actually takes us on average 23 minutes to refocus on what we were doing. Oh, man. And so... 
I just think of that, like every time there's a notification, I'm like, poof, 23 minutes, gone. Like that's what goes on in my brain. And so I try to limit that. This study was like 10 years ago too. And it said that we were being interrupted every 11 minutes. I'm sure it's so much worse now. Most people end up spending like a third of their day just recovering from distractions. And so the more we can eliminate those distractions, the more time we have to get the things done that we want to do. And therefore, the more time we have to do the things we want to do. I wonder, I'm sure there's some kind of connection between like distraction time and the effort that takes leading to like stress and burnout and just feeling overwhelmed because it's like Mm -hmm. we're just being bombarded with all this stuff all day. Yeah. Yeah. And like what happens, right? You get a text or something, you go and you, you stop what you're doing, you go answer it and then you come back to what you're doing. And sometimes you're like, wait, what was I doing? Where was I? And it just takes us a while to get back into it. And then we, you know, we are in it for another five minutes and then that whole cycle starts again. What I call it is letting the day happen to you, where Mm. you start out with the best of intentions and then somehow it's 6 p.m. and you've been working hard all day. You have not been screwing around and yet you didn't check a single thing off your task list. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of these types of things. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So it's almost like what you're teaching um, people to do is taking control over their schedule and over their time. Does that Mm -hmm. that sound accurate? Yeah. My coaching program is called Take Control of Your Time. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) You nailed it. Yeah. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit. There's Mm -hmm. always like a piece of me that's a little perfectionist that, you know, I want to like hone everything and make it perfect before I ship it Mm -hmm. or like perfect to my standards at that moment. But I've heard you speak before about this idea of good enough. Can you speak on Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Good enough is like my favorite phrase Uh, because I think that sometimes we feel like good enough means we're settling or something. Mm. But I feel like good enough is really exactly what we want to do. Good enough can be different for different things. If you're a surgeon, good enough is like 99.9%, right? If you're writing an email that somebody is going to spend 15 seconds looking over, it might be fine to have some spelling error or something in there. Like Mm. people are never going to notice it anyways. And so being able to say like for the type of work I'm doing, what is good enough? And then saying, okay, that's what I'm actually going to strive for because good enough is exactly what it is. It's good enough. Mm. And we don't need to go beyond that. If you think back to like school, if you were ever in a pass fail class, you never want to get a 90% on a pass fail, but you want a 71%, right? Like you want to put in enough effort to get 71% so that you can pass. That's what I think about all the time. It's like, what's going to get me to where I need to go with the least amount of effort? Mm. and the least amount of time there. The other important thing I think around around perfectionism is that it often takes the same amount of time to get something from zero to 90% as it takes to get it from 90% to 100%. Mm -hmm. And you're typically the only person who notices the difference between 90 and 100%. Nobody else is like, oh yes, this graphic was just perfectly placed, right? Like (laughs) nobody cares. That's another thing that I think about with, with perfectionism too, is that like, is it hindering us from making progress? This idea of good enough for the type of work that you're doing is so key. Cause for me, I do want to make sure the podcast and the content I put out is like up mm-hmm. to the standard I want it to be. But then my emails, those are mm-hmm. like at a less standard. Cause it's not like this permanent thing that's going to go out on the internet. 
Right, right. And like how visible is the work and how impactful is it going to be? I have some clients who work in like the self-driving car space. And like if you're working on software for self-driving cars, like good enough is a very high bar. Like it has to be very yeah. good. Right? Yeah. Um, but if we're if we work at a company who makes like task app software or something, like maybe good enough is slight like it still needs to be really good. It's still a project product we're gonna ship, but it's not a life or death situation. And mm. so I, I think you're right. Like that key of what type of work is it, how permanent is it, who's gonna see it, how visible is it? I think that's important to think about. Yeah, for sure. This is kind of tied to perfectionism, but there's this idea that I've always held, I think a lot of other young people hold, in that we're running out of time to accomplish all the things we want to do. For me personally, I think that once I become a mom, which I want to be, that I'll, I won't have time for myself. I won't have time to run a business and things. And of course, you're doing it now. So I'd love to hear from the other side, like, how do you make that happen? Does it matter to stick to a timeline for yourself? You may not want to hear this, but you're not going to do all of the things that you want to do in your life. Nobody is. No. Like we are all we are all going to die someday with a big long list of things we didn't do. There's no amount of things you could do that would make that not true because you're an ambitious person who wants to do a lot of things. I actually think that's better because I don't want to live in a world where every day I finish literally everything and I start from scratch and I never have anything I'm striving for and I'm bored to death. That doesn't sound fun to me. A big piece of the mindset around productivity is that like we are not going to do all of the things. And yes, you could burn yourself out. You could work every day until midnight, every day until 2 a.m. You could do that for the next 70 years and you would still have more things to do that you wanted to do. And mm. that is just life. And so I think what's much more important is being able to prioritize in such a way that at the end of every day, you can say, the things I did today were more important than the things I didn't do. Mm -hmm. To me, that is much more valuable in terms of looking at it than saying like, how am I going to have done all of these things? Because you're not like that, that like perfectionism is a goal you're never going to be able to accomplish. So I hope that doesn't burst your bubble. <laughs> like, I wish it were different. You're going to be able to do a lot of things. <laughs> right, Just not all right, of them, right? right? Yeah, no, that's uh, fair. Priorities. Um, priorities. And then I think, you know, in terms of like, once once some certain thing happens in your life, like once you become a mom or whatever, are you not going to have time for yourself? Like, this is entirely up to you. I think that, yes, there are many people who feel like they're moms and they have no time for themselves. I don't feel that way. I've organized my life in such a way, like it's really important for me to have like a few hours every day where I'm doing only what I want to do and that I'm not at the beck and call of everyone around me all of the time. That's why I care about productivity so much is because I'm like a very driven, lazy person. <laughs> like I just... <laughs> That's so ironic. I just, yeah, I just want to have time to do whatever I want. Like I like laying around in bed and like sleeping in. I like like reading and watching TV and like watching movies. Like I like doing all of that stuff. And so I want to have time for it. And so I'm really productive during the times that I'm working so that I can have more of that other time. There is some reality that of course, like once you have kids, there is less time that you get to devote to yourself, obviously, because you have 
other human beings that you're <laughs> raising in the world. But I also think that it's definitely not impossible. You know, I didn't start my business when my kids were you know, seven and nine. It's definitely not because I thought I couldn't. I just actually never thought I would start a business. And so it wasn't like something that was on my radar. But if I look around me at other women I know who have started businesses, like I know a bunch of them who've had babies in the last two years and have multiple mm -hmm. kids and are running startups and businesses with little, little kids. So I actually do think it's possible. And I think that it's just how you arrange your priorities. If you're really productive during eight hours a day, you could get a whole lot done and be running an effective company and still then have time to go home to your kids and your family. Mm. The other reality is that when your kids are little, <laughs> like when my kids were little, I saw them for like an hour a day because like they were at daycare and I was at my job and then I would come home and I would like get them fed. Then they would go to bed at like 7 p.m. There was time after that to do other things. I was tired, but I still was able to do other things as well. So it's not as if like all time goes away. It's just that you have to organize it differently. Yeah, I forgot about that, how, how much sleep kids need. <laughs> They'll just like knock out at 7 p.m. And I, I guess as they get older, too, they become more independent. And so they have their own schedules, too. Yeah, I thought kids would change my life a lot more than they did. Mm. Like, of course, it's different, but... I, I feel like kids got like, kind of more seamlessly integrated than I would have imagined. And I still have a lot of time to do the things that I want to do by design. Well, that gives me hope. What did make you start your own business? Like what motivated that? <laughs> so I'd worked at a couple of different startups, at a couple of different companies. I've worked for the same CEO at two companies. So he like brought me along to the second one. And when that company went out of business, I really just like could not imagine having to get another job and prove myself to people mm -hmm. again. I, I felt like I had had such autonomy and like such a great working environment for the last like 10 years. And the idea of going to work for someone else and trying to prove myself again, just was so distasteful <laughs> that I was like, you know, what? I think I'm just going to start a business instead. <laughs> That's what I did. I, and, I, and I basically was like, I'm going to give it 18 months. If I can make it work in 18 months, then I'll keep doing it. And if I can't, then I'll go get another job. And you did. And I did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very happy about it now. But yeah, I had never been one of those people that was like, oh, I'm going to start a company at some point. It just like, it became the lesser of two evils. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share what the different steps of the business have been? Like, what were the first few months like? And then what does it look like now? Yeah. So it, it's funny, right? I listen to like how I built this and all those podcasts about business building. I love hearing people's stories because you realize like nobody knew what they were doing at the beginning. Mm -hmm. That is very true for me too. And I probably still don't know what I'm doing, but like the very beginning, no idea. I didn't even know like what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be around productivity and time management, but I didn't really have a business idea or a business plan. And so the first thing I did was like, I was like, I'm going to start writing best practices documents about all the things I know about. And so I just spent like a month codifying all the things, strategies, whatever that I knew about. I, I also created a website right away. I was like, okay, I get a Squarespace website up so that like I'm legit, so that like I have a place to send people. And then I was like, now that I've written all this stuff, I can cohesively put it into a program. And so I'm going to try to do this as like a coaching program. And then I got a client, like I got a first coaching client yay. <laughs> and yay. And so I like built the program out while he was going through it. Right. It was like, I was only like one week ahead at any 
any given point of what I'd actually built out. And he did not know that he was my first client. I still think he doesn't know to this day. Um, <laughs> but he's like, over the years, like this person has referred me many clients. So I think I did a good job. Oh, wow. um, the thing that I did that helped me was I reached out to literally every person that I had ever met. Like every email address that I had from like all the jobs I'd ever had, like. I reached out to people I hadn't talked to since high school. I reached out to like the insurance broker of a startup I worked at three jobs ago. Like I reached out to every single person that I knew and just said, Hey, I've started this business and here's what I'm doing. And here's who my ideal clients are. And if you know anyone who would be interested, tell them about me. And that's actually how I got most of my first clients. That was way far out of my comfort zone, but I think it was something that really helped because in the beginning, nobody knows who you are and what you're doing unless you tell them. Mm, yeah, for sure. And for your line of work, like coaching, that requires so much trust, right? And going to your network and to warm contacts makes so much sense. Yeah. And then I think after that, it just became more of a referral business. Out of that initial outreach, I started doing some workshops for our clients. So I started working with Lyft and I was doing a lot of time management workshops for them. And that was really great. And then because of that, I was like, oh, maybe I should try to market this to other companies. So I started that part of the business. And then at a certain point, um, Udemy reached out to me and they were like, hey, we don't have a good time management course for our Udemy for Business project. Like, would you like to create one with us? And I was like, sure, why not? Like, sounds good. And so that's yeah. how like the course side of it. So I, I think it's like all very organic. And now it's like, oh, yes, I have these three pillars of, of my business. But it was pretty organic to get there. Yeah, I was looking at your Udemy course. There's like 30,000 people that have taken it with like five star reviews. I'm like, yeah, she's getting it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, I've been so just like humbled by the, the course through Udemy, like to be able to have been able to reach that many people was like not something that I would have imagined. And so that's been really fun too to just be able to like have a product out there that is really accessible to people. Do you have plans to write a book? Because I feel like you need to write one. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. So I, that's why I started writing my blog. So I started a blog like three years ago and I write every week and I send it out to my email list. And the reason I started doing it was like one, just for to be in touch with people who were connected to me. But also I was like, if I just start writing, then eventually I'll be able to have enough content to put it into a book. Mm, <laughs> and yes. so I don't know when I'm going to do this, but it is something that is on my radar that, uh, that I really would like to do. Well, we've reached the end of the questions I have for you. Is there any other piece of advice that you want to leave for listeners? I think one, one thing I'd love for listeners, like no matter whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they work for other people, like one little tip that I want to leave is in the morning, like whatever your first non-meeting work hour is, right? So like, don't wake up early for this, but like whatever the first hour of your workday is where you're not in meetings, do whatever the most important thing is that you need to do that day during that time. And don't check email or messages until after it's done. Because mm. we often start with email and Slack and email and Slack is other people's priorities. We're social humans. And so the second we check it, now we feel compelled to get into that reactive and response mode. But the reality is if you get back to somebody at 10 a.m. versus 9 a.m., they don't care. They don't even notice. But what you can get done from 9 to 10 a.m., before you even check messages is going to be huge. And so that's one tip I would say is like start the day with your own priorities and get to other people's priorities after. That's such a great tip. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> well, this has been amazing, Alexis. Thank you so much. If listeners are interested in learning more about you and your work, where can they find you? 
Yeah, so they can find me at alexishasselberger.com, which I hope you'll put in the show notes because no one will be able to spell. Um, <laughs> uh, they can find me on Instagram. I'm at uh, do.more.stress.less and Facebook. I'm on do more stress less. And I have a Facebook group there that anyone can join if they would like to interact and get support around these things. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a really fun conversation. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.